All right, we'll, uh, we'll start by reading in the uh, book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 8. Let's give you a second. Luke, chapter 2, verse 8 through 20. And I'll start reading. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is, it, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on the earth peace among men, with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and found their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which has been told about which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. speakers. In fact, I know many of you have met and heard my friend Lazarus from a few uh, months ago speak here once before, and if you haven't heard his message, I suggest you listen to it. It's on the website of Dennis's house called Living the Life of Mary in a Martha World. 
But since you don't know who I am, I wanted to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Malachi. I'm a shepherd. And not just any shepherd, I'm one of the most blessed and privileged shepherds in the world and in all of history because of a special event that happened to me one cold and unforeseen night. Now, my understanding here is that you enjoy going verse by verse through passages, and that's the way that you teach here. Just so you know, from my uh, Jewish background and my training, that's the way I like to do it as well. So I'm sure you'll be grateful for the way I'm going to present the scriptures this morning. Let me just share my story with you a little bit here. You'll notice in verse 8 that in this, he records this. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, the region we were located at that night was the same place where Mary and Joseph had come earlier to register for a census that the Roman government had commanded all Jews within Israel to partake in. In verse 4, Luke records this was the city of David known as Bethlehem. Now the reason for why the king would want a census in the first place was twofold in purpose. Uh, one was for taxation, figure out how many families they could make money off of to uh, pay for different things in the, in the, in the land, uh, just like it is here. And the second one was to have count the fighting uh, men for, arm, for army and military purposes. They wanted to know the strength of their numbers for going to war. Now the way a registration would happen was a person would always have to go to the town or region where they were born. So if you happen to live and work in the same place you were born, that would be an easy task. You wouldn't require much travel. If, however, you lived in northern Israel and, and you uh, were born in the south, you had to make a long journey. Well, this is exactly the situation of Mary and Joseph in uh, their day. I want to show you a picture here. You'll notice that uh, uh, Joseph and Mary are living in, Beth or in Nazareth and they have to make a journey all the way to Bethlehem. If you look at the distance there on the map, that's about a 150 kilometer journey and not an easy one because of the terrain in Israel. It's rocky, it's mountainous, it's, and uh, the climate changes depending when you travel from north to south. And so, not to mention you're nine months pregnant, and I know what it's like for you women. I've seen you. You uh, last three weeks of your life with, before a baby's born. It is pretty nasty to move around. Imagine going on a donkey on a 150-kilometer journey, basically traveling to Red Deer on a rocky mountainous terrain in hot and cold weather. You wouldn't be very pleased. But you were happy to get married to Joseph, and so that would be your your lot in life. So this map though shows you the region which we were located at in Bethlehem, really close to Jerusalem. And that's where we had settled down to make a living as shepherds. Now I'm curious by a show of hands, how many of you make a living as shepherds in here like me? Come on, Jeff. I heard about your uh, adventures. No? Okay. I didn't think so. I didn't think Okotoks are very familiar. So let me just take a minute to share about what my life is like. I want you to know what I do for a living. You might think, well, what's there to tell? I mean, it tell, you just watch sheep. That's all you do, right? Well, that is partly what I do, but it's a lot more complicated than that. At the basic level, yes, but it's not as easy as you think. It's a hard life, and it's not for the faint-hearted. The typical day for me looks like this. In the morning after I wake, after I've taken care of my own needs, uh, my goal is to get my flocks out to pasture as 
uh, so they can forage for food and find water. The way I organize them in the morning and get them all together is that I have a specific call and the sheep know my voice and they respond to my voice only. So if I'm with other shepherds and our sheep are intermingled, if I make the call, they come to me based on my voice. You can see I have a lot of work to do with my sheep uh, this morning. Um, it's a bit tricky. We're still learning these things. They're little baby sheep. And so by the time they're mature, this should be a different story. But that's how I get my sheep to move in the morning. Once they're out to pasture, my main job is to keep them alive. <laughs> that's really my job. Keep them alive. Um, lots of things fight to take their life. Um, they easily go astray. Uh, they're not the smartest animals on the planet. And once they, they're lost, they can't find their way back to the fold that easy. Uh, we, have our, we suffer hardships like predators. Um, wolves are after them. Leopards are after them. Lions and bears are after them. Uh, even humans, I have to look out for robbers who pose a threat to my constant uh, flock. To protect them, I carry a crook which I can use as a weapon if I have to. I also have a slingshot and I use dogs uh, to herd and to protect. I fight against the weather um, as well, uh, the seasons, the terrain of Israel. Remember, I'm in the Middle East, uh, nothing is constant there. Uh, the terrain is, is rugged, it, it, it can, can be lush, so there's like sometimes arid uh, places, sometimes uh, plush places. Water is abundant in some areas, it's dry others. Um, it's cold in some places, warm in others, and it's just a, a constant uh, struggle depending on how far you travel and where you have to go. So finding food and water is not that easy. Sometimes it takes hours to find it, and, so, and sometimes it's marginal even when we do. Andrew was actually sharing a story with me that occurred in northern Syria in the winter of 1910 and 11. An unprecedented storm hit the country, and it was accompanied by a snowfall of more than three feet which covered the grounds for weeks. During that time, hundreds of thousands of sheep and goats perished, not so much from the cold as from the fact that they could get no food. The weather is hard on me. Um, when it's plus 30, you can't find shade anywhere at, at times. And when it's minus 30, it's, I can't exactly go into heated buildings. So I'm constantly outdoors and always shaped by the hardships of the weather. Life can be often miserable. Uh, you may know of Jacob, uh, Laban's um, uh, son-in-law. One of Jacob's complaints against Laban um, when he, Laban tried to like, um, jip him out of like, his uh, prophets was his, his toil and labor for him based on the weather conditions he'd always have to face and how hard, in the, uh, hard, how hard he worked on his behalf. In, Israel 30, or in Genesis 31:40, this is Jacob says, "This is my situation, Laban. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes." I mean, Jacob knew how miserable to be a shepherd was in Israel, and he didn't like the fact that Laban didn't recognize him for all the hard work he did and the sufferings that he had to endure. As a result, I carry a mantle that I can sleep under, made out of sheepskin, and it acts like a sleeping bag, and even carry a light tent to make sure that I, I can face the elements. Once the day is over, after we've tried to find water and food and whatnot, we head back home to the home base, and as I stand at the door of the pen, I count each sheep as they pass under my staff to make sure none are missing. Once I'm satisfied, all is safe, then I can rest. But when it's time to go for bed, I sleep in the entry of the door of the pen, and I do that throughout the entire night, so if one tries to escape, 
I will notice them trying to leave and I'll be the first to know and I can protect them. So that's a typical day in the life of the shepherd. And I heard that you guys love the Bible here and you're probably wondering, where'd you get all that information from? I have uh, for you all the references for those scriptures if you'd like to know about my life and uh, where that comes from. But hopefully you gain an appreciation for what I do. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's not for lazy people. If you're out of shape, you won't be able to do my job. I'm not going to lie though, at the same time, it can be quite mundane, it's very predictable, and it can be often tedious, and nothing new really happens in my life. And I often wished that something new and exciting would happen to break up my routine. So you could imagine then, one night, when, when we were shocked by what happened in our lives. Read verse 9 with me. An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before me and on my friends, and the glory of the Lord shone around us, and we were terribly frightened. You know, of all the things we ever thought that would happen to us, we never expected a heavenly encounter such as this. There hadn't been a prophet in the land for over 400 years. No one had spoken for God in Israel for 400 years. And yet here we were, shepherds, receiving an angelic revelation. And when Luke records that we were terribly frightened, that's a very accurate description. You might think, well, you're kind of wimpy, aren't you? I thought you faced lions and bears and, and uh, leopards and fend off robbers. Like, what's a little heavenly revelation to scare you for? Aren't angels little friendly guys that are there to protect you and pat you on the back and say, good job? Listen, you need to look at the angel's appearance and the glory of the Lord through my lens, through a Jewish lens. Do you understand that whenever we understood an angel to show up or the presence of, presence of God's glory to be in our midst, that we expected death? We expected that if, if God manifests his presence to us in this way, we were going to die. Unless he extended special grace, we were dead on our tracks. Do you remember the Israel after coming out of Egypt? They arrived at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses is going up, going up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And look at what God says. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln. And the whole mountain shook violently. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go back down and warn the people not to break through their boundaries to see the Lord, or they will die. Even the priests who regularly came near to the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God told Moses in Exodus 23 verse 20, You cannot see my glory, for no man can see me and live. That's why the priest would put his, a rope around his neck. However, his neck. <laughs> Good, there you go. He probably thought he should at times. But put his rope around his leg, his ankle, when he'd go in to enter the Holy of Holies where God's presence was in the temple. Because if he died, they would have a, the other people could drag him out from behind the curtain. Because the other people were so afraid if they went in to get him, to get a dead body, they'd be killed too. The prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 1, in a vision. He didn't even experience it in real life. It was just in a vision in his, in his mind. He experienced the presence of God's glory and completely melted and fell on his face, face in the dirt after experiencing it. He was so overcome with the presence of God. Do you get the drift? 
We're not wimps. The presence of God is a fearful and powerful thing. You could imagine how relieved we were when the angel's message then was not one of judgment, but one of comfort and grace. Look at verse 10 with me. The angel said to us, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is the Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Now when I, I'll be honest with you, uh, when I first heard the angel's message, I didn't fully comprehend everything he said to me because I was still in a state of shock. But now that I look back on that moment, I now understand the magnitude of what he was saying to me. You see, as a Jew, I lived in expectation of the coming of the Messiah and his purpose in coming to us. I knew he was coming to save us. So when the angel said, I bring you good news that a Savior has been born for you today, who is the Christ, that was nothing new to me. I believed that. But what I missed that night that I know now is the purpose in which he came to save. The significance of what he came to save me from. See, my belief as a Jew whether the salvation that the Christ was going to accomplish for us was a political salvation. It was a freedom from Israel and from Roman rule to reestablish Israel's independence with, with the Christ sitting on a physical throne in the physical temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't just me that believed this. Even his disciples believed this when they followed him. What I've come to realize now was that was not the initial purpose for his coming. He came to die for the sins of the Jewish people. In verse 11, notice he says, A Savior has been born for you. For you. You who? You the Jewish people. I'm a Jew. That's who he was speaking to first. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.3 said this, he, he, it was accurate. He said, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So all the prophecies we read about the Messiah and His coming to save, we read them all in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah, but we missed the reason for His coming. We didn't fully understand. It was just for the pure, pure, purely for sins in His first coming. That's what He came for. He came to die. But that didn't change my view of God later, later in life when I fully under, comp comprehended, understood this. You see, for me then, I learned this, that to be right with God, it meant this. If He was coming to save me, it means I needed to be saved from something. And if it wasn't politics, and just for me to have a better life in this world, it had to be something else. It means that I had to be freed from the power of sin in my life. But if it meant that he had to free me from the power of sin, that meant I couldn't count on my Jewish heritage to save me. I couldn't re rely on my, my family tree, as, as one of your congregate members said today, as, a, as my spiritual heritage, in other words, to save me. My grandparents' faith couldn't help me in my faith. Any acts of goodness that I did acts of charity, how nice I was as a person, couldn't save me. If they could, I wouldn't need a savior. I'd be, I could save myself. My obedience to the Mosaic law meant nothing in terms of my salvation. The rituals I performed, the ceremonies I went to, 
to earn God's favor didn't matter. It didn't matter if I was baptized, circumcised, or ritualized. It was irrelevant. If I was going to have a relationship with God and escape His judgment, it was going to have to come through the forgiveness found in His Son, Jesus Christ. On His merits alone. The second thing I came to realize later on was the extent of God's offer of salvation. He already told me a Savior had been, the, the good news and great joy was that a Savior had been given for me, for you. But it was also for all people, for all nations. Look in verse 10. The angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people, not just the Jews. The Canadians, the Americans, the Iranians, the Chinese, and so on. It reminds me of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, not just Jews, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. What an incredible message that was that night. The purpose and why he came as a savior and the extent of his salvation. Like I said, in that moment, I didn't fully comprehend what I was hearing that night and what I was experiencing or what truly good news this was or what it meant for me. But God in that moment knew it. And that's why for him, it was cause for a giant cosmic celebration. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there appeared of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know, as I told you earlier, I was already terrified by the appearance of one angel. Can you imagine our surprise when in the midst a multitude showed up before us, declaring praises to God for the birth of His Son, Jesus? I mean, when you read a multitude, don't think of that as just being a dozen or so. In the New Testament, the multitude always refers to numbers described in the hundreds and even thousands. So all I can say is this. I wish you could have been there to see and hear what it was like that night. There's really no words to describe the voices of thousands of angels declaring praises to God. You know what it's like just even in the worship this morning, how it can be uplifting and moving and encouraging. Could you imagine thousands of angels who never are out of tune <laughs> singing praises to God in that way? To be honest, we didn't want the moment to end. We wanted to sit in that pocket forever. But it, but it came to an end. And all of a sudden, there was silence. And Luke tells us in verse 15 that when the angels had gone away from us and gone into heaven, we began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so we came in a hurry and found our way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. The decision to go to Bethlehem was an easy one. How could we ignore everything we had just seen and heard? Now, I must admit, I was elated when I arrived to find the Messiah lying in the manger just as the angel had told us. Because it proved that I wasn't crazy. That I wasn't hallucinating. But my, what I experienced in the field was not a dream. God had really spoken to me. And I knew 
by seeing him laying there and finding Mary and Joseph, that this was a, a revelation that was true and genuine. But the one thing I couldn't figure out at the time was, if this truly was the Christ, God's Son, why was he born in such humble and humiliating circumstances? Why was this king not born in a palace under the best medical care possible? With this incredible like, uh, you know, announcements with uh, like tons of people around him. Why born in a manger of all, or placed in the manger and born in this, these horrific circumstances? I mean, a manger is like you're basically your dog dish. That's what it is. It's a feeding trough for animals. Surely God's Son deserved better than that, our Messiah. Well, like I said before, many things I didn't understand that time that I do now. And now what I realize now is that for God's purposes to be fulfilled, He had to be born in such lowly and humble circumstances due to the message it conveys to us today. Jesus is a different type of king. He didn't come as a pampered, privileged ruler that was off limits that nobody could relate to. He was born coming into this world in the same way he left, in utter humility. Teaching us that he is someone who is available, approachable to the most common person, people like me. This transcendent God would be willing to condescend himself to come and be with us, both in his birth and in his death. And Paul captures Christ's humility so well in Philippians 2. He says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by the way, both in birth and in death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was the king that had come into the world that we were to serve. Well, after we arrived in Bethlehem and saw everything as the angel had predicted, we didn't want Mary and Joseph to be alarmed by our presence. I mean, here was a bunch of strangers suddenly showing up on the scene with no explanation as to who we were, what we were doing, and, and how we ended up coming there. So to alleviate any stress on their part, we told them right away. And Luke was right when he said in verse 17 that we had made it known the statement which had been told to us about their child. And what's interesting about this, there were two different responses to our announcement. In verse 18, all those who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Those who were present who wondered, wondered about it basically they were amazed at our information and the experiences we had. They, they marveled at these things. Luke uses this word a lot in his gospel. Um, he uses the word wondered or amazed multiple times. It was used as the response of the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee. They marveled and wondered at how the wind and the water obeyed him. It was used of the crowds in Luke 11:14 when Jesus cast a demon out of a man who could not speak. 
Upon his deliverance, the crowds were amazed and wondered and marveled that he had regained his voice. And Jesus had the power to do this. You know, people have often been amazed about Jesus Christ and the circumstances surrounding him. Well, that night was no different. It was a natural response based on the supernatural events that happened. But it just simply left these people in awe. But for Mary, it was a different story. She wasn't just simply awestruck or awestruck at all. She treasured and pondered these things. In other words, the things that were told to her by us concerning the birth of her son and what happened to us in those fields that night left her in deep contemplation about what God was doing in and through the birth of her baby boy. Now when you consider what had transpired in her life months before, you can begin to understand why. Did you know, like, or do you remember that um, just like we had, an angel had appeared to her, bringing her good news months earlier? Do you remember? An angel appeared to her and said, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the, so the baby to be born will be holy and will be called the Son of God. You know, when Mary arrived at Elizabeth's house, her auntie, after she heard this news to tell her, she went all the way to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth also was miraculously um, uh, pregnant as well in her old age. An angel had appeared to her as well. And so she has a baby. And Mary arrives saying, an angel appeared to me saying, I'm going to have a baby. Do you know what Mary, or sorry, Elizabeth said when uh, Mary showed up? Listen to this. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Do you see what she declared? What the auntie Elizabeth declared? Mary, you're, you're carrying my Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, in your belly. How did she know? How did she know? Because when she showed up, her baby, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb, confirming that he was the Messiah. Because an angel had appeared to um, Elizabeth saying, your son is going to be the messenger before the Messiah comes. He's going to tell the people the Messiah is on his way. See why our words made her treasure and ponder and made it put her into deep contemplation? We told her a Savior has been born tonight for, for Israel, for the Jews, and for the rest of the world. And there was this multiple, there's thousands of angels bringing praise to God for the birth of this son. And she's going back in her mind going, I was told by an angel that I had God's son in my belly. And Elizabeth confirmed it when I saw her. Her mind is going crazy trying to sort all this stuff out. It was an exciting time and a pondering time for Mary. Imagine carrying the Christ. Now, I didn't get a chance to ask her, but I wonder if these were some of the questions going through her mind. I mean, all of you expecting mothers and who have children, think of all the self-conversation you have in your head 
about everything, that, about life and every aspect of the facets that this child is about to be born, about all the things you're thinking about, that your husband has no idea about what you're talking, like what goes through your mind. Everything, your insecurities, your, your hopes, your fears, your failures. Is life going to change all these things? Well, imagine being married. She's carrying the baby. It's her DNA in one sense, like because she's carrying the baby. But the father's the Holy Spirit. Maybe she's saying, what's he going to look like when he's older? What does the Son of God look like? Like, is he going to have any of my traits? <laughs> what's he going to be like? Am I going to have any impact in his life with my character? Or is it just going to be like the Holy Spirit's influence in his life? Is he going to need to be disciplined? Or is he just going to be perfect? How is he going to relate to the siblings if he's perfect? And they're not. How is this going to play out in the family? If he's going to be king, when is he going to be king? 20? 18? 13? Like 40? Like, what, like what's going on here? How is he going to get his kingdom? We're from Nazareth. The temple's in Jerusalem. How is this going to transpire? Does that mean I get to move to the temple? That'd be a great upgrade for my life. Am I even fit to be his mother? After spending time with Mary and Joseph and being given the incredible privilege from God to see the Messiah, it was eventually time to leave. We wanted to give the new proud parents space. I mean, we know how that is when you give a bit birth. You kind of, you love seeing people, but you also want to be alone. Thing is though, we wanted to go as well. We could hardly contain ourselves about the birth of Jesus Christ. And we wanted to be witnesses and tell everyone about it. And so that's what we did. In verse 20, we went back to the fields, glorifying and praising God for all we had heard and seen, just as that had been told to us. We were excited about the grace that God has shown us, and we couldn't help keep it inside, or, but, but, or get it out, I should say. <laughs> we had to get it out. We didn't want to keep it inside. We became the first evangelists about the Savior, the Messiah. Us, simple shepherds. Wasn't, God never used the priests. He never used the, the people in the synagogue, leader, leaders of the synagogue, any of those people to proclaim the message and to speak through. He used us, lowly, humble shepherds. We were so grateful and so excited for the news. We just couldn't help but want to share it with everybody around us. And my prayer for you this Christmas is to learn from me in that way, to follow in my footsteps, declare the good news of the Savior and why He's come into this world. Not to make your life better here and now. That can be a side benefit. <laughs> He came to save you from the power of sin so that you could have a relationship with the eternal God. So that you can escape His judgment and be with Him in His coming kingdom and glory. And share the extent 
It's not restricted to just the Jews or just the Canadians. This news is for the entire world. Now I understand it's your custom at Genesis House to do lessons at the end of every sermon. I've only got one for you today. And remember why we're here at the Christmas season in the first place. The word Christmas has the word Christ in it. Christmas doesn't exist without Christ. I know your culture is trying to remove that uh, emphasis, but that is not the Christian view. Christmas is here because Christ is here. And so we are going to end with this lesson. The purpose of the Christmas season is to remember a Savior has been born for you. So how do you receive this Savior? How do you get into relationship with this Savior? You acknowledge that you have sinned against God. You acknowledge it. Your spiritual heritage, your birthright, your acts of charity, kindness, goodness, they're all noble things and they're important things. But the thing is we all have a track record that is not perfect, it's not clean. If people were afraid to stand in the presence of God because they thought they were going to be incinerated from His presence, and the priests had to put ropes around their ankles, and Moses couldn't stand in the presence because he was going to, thought he was going to die, and, and the priests who were consecrated had to be so careful in the way they approached God. The reason why we get to approach God is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have to fear God because of the blood of Jesus Christ who's forgiven us for sin. So we acknowledge that we have sin and that we believe that Jesus Christ has done something for us to rectify that. He died on the cross as a substitution so that we didn't have to pay the penalty for sin. As a result then, we confess our sins to the Lord. We tell Him how grateful we are, how thankful we are for what He's done for us. He died needlessly. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, he, be he became obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. Not for himself, he had no sin, but for us. And in response to this, we dedicate our lives to him in service. One of the things we do is we become witnesses, like the shepherds. We don't keep our faith private, we share it with others. And we declare the saving purposes of the Messiah, and we honor him by the way we live our lives. I want to leave you with one passage of scripture that summarizes the Christmas message. And we'll end with this. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. I love that. What does he say in verse 14 in the angels? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He's united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law and his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself in one people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you, Gentiles, Canadians, who were far off from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit, 
because of what Christ has done for us. Paul summarized my experience in the fields of Bethlehem that night.